All right, folks, what's going on? This is Jake Hofer. This is the Land Podcast. And this week, it feels a little bit like movie day with a substitute teacher. And the reason being is just finished up another traveling week for Exodus. We went shed hunting, and I think we found about 20 sheds. We have the YouTube video um, of our shed adventures on our channel. And then we also went to the Iowa Deer Classic, sold some cameras, saw some old customers, uh, got some new customers, so that was great. And then Monday, we went to record with Bill Winky and recorded a Whitetail Cribs and then also about an hour and a half podcast that will be getting released here on Trail Cam Radio and The Land Podcast. So that will be great. Some really good information. There's a handful of people in the industry that are always so generous with their time and knowledge. And those folks are greatly appreciated. Bill is certainly one of those folks in my mind. And if you even just go to his website, BillWinky.com, he has a ton of really good information and resources for land management, buying land, hunting tactics, literally everything. And I'm a little I've been a little burnt out on blogs because I think a lot of times, and I've been guilty of this as a as a writer back in the day of just writing content to have content on the internet. And then there's some blogs that actually have so much value and information, and that is Bill Winky's website. So I'm just gonna plug that here and let's see. Also, we have the trade-up program for anyone that is a previous Exodus customer that has bought a camera in the past, an ex- original Exodus Lift 1 that's knocking on seven years old, or a Trek or a Lift 2, you can trade up and buy a render $100 off by sending in your old camera and claiming that $100 discount. There's a little bit to this campaign, so if you go over to the link tree, you can go to the website and find out all the details on this trade-up program. It's gonna run for the rest of March, so if that's something that applies to you, really strongly encourage you to take advantage of it. Also, the resource sign-up, it's coming. I tell you what, it's really challenging to be wearing so many hats in so many different fashions. So it's just one of those things that has, hasn't really been pushed off, but when we release something, I just want it to be very helpful and worth actually signing up on the email newsletter, which thankfully there are a lot of people who have taken up, um, taken me up on signing up and going to the link tree, signing up for that newsletter. And I'm telling you, when you see Jake Ofer Land Podcast in your email news box, you're gonna wanna open it because it's gonna be good. So that is my promise to you. Real quick, two more things before we get into this. The first one being, remember, the goal of this platform and podcast is to help 100 people buy their first piece of dirt. And we've been chipping away at that number ever so steadily. And we have a lot of folks in the pipeline that have reached out that I've connected them with other agents who are great professionals in the area. Or uh, there's been folks here in Illinois that I've been able to help in some capacity in terms of helping them buy their first piece of ground. That is while we're doing this. We're not doing this because I have something to sell you or anything else. Doing it purely from an informational and passion project to help people achieve their goals in buying land. So just want to remind everyone and thank you for everyone who's made a point to reach out and say, hey, you help me or B, can you help me? And I'm happy to do either. And finally, this is why this week kind of feels like I'm a substitute teacher rolling in a TV on a cart. And the reason being is because I watched a video this past weekend and it was with YouTuber, he's a, I don't know how to pronounce his, his name to be completely honest, Andres, I would say. And very sharp guy, a lot of great videos. And he talks about how or why he just won a million dollars in debt. And, but that is just the very beginning of it. He talks about the inflation, um, what data shows and how interest rates can really 
make a difference in the marketplace or how long it takes for them to catch up. And then also talks about writing a cash offer that's really not cash and explains what that is. So some of this is kind of residential, but I still think that there's some really strong and great information that is from this video that will help you guys or keep you informed. And I hope there's some form of value. And next week, we're going to have a fresh, brand new, great episode for the Land Podcast. So I'm going to leave it at that. Hope you guys have a wonderful week. Until next time, see ya. So I finally did it. I can't believe it. This is terrifying, but I finally got myself into debt, which is a place I never thought I'd be because I've always been so afraid to borrow money my whole life. I never want to feel like I owe someone money, but here we are. This is not clickbait. I actually did borrow a small loan of a million dollars from my father. No, I'm kidding. My parents are not rich, but I did take out the loan and I realize I'm fully aware that borrowing a million dollars is not relatable to anyone ever, but thankfully you don't have to borrow that much money for this strategy to be effective. And if you watch this video all the way through with an open mind, hopefully I can prove how this will work with a lot less money as well. But I also wanna be realistic and say that just because this works for me does not mean it'll work for everyone all the time. It'll depend on a lot of things which I'll explain later in the video. The reason this works for me is because every single month we're seeing headlines like this. Inflation breaks a 40-year record high. Even gas in California has reached over $7 a gallon. Everything's becoming more expensive. Food is becoming more expensive. Rent is becoming more expensive. Everything thanks to inflation. And considering what's going on in Europe, I really do believe that inflation is only going to get worse. And this just means that we are forced to invest our money. But the question is, where do we invest that money? So the first place I looked at investing my money is of course the stock market. And if you're somebody who's buying individual stocks right now, like a lot of people are, especially those high flying tech stocks, you are down something like 16% year to date. That is the NASDAQ index. If you're somebody who likes to buy smaller companies or small caps like the ones you'd find from the Russell 2000 index, you're down something like 12% year to date. If you're like me and you like to make your investing stress-free and pretty straightforward, you're buying the S&P 500 and that is down 9.5% year to date. So the stock market is not doing too well. If you're somebody who likes to buy and invest your money in crypto, press F to pay respects because that's doing even worse. Bitcoin is down 17.5% year to date and Ethereum is down 30%. So crypto is doing even worse. Bonds, which no one's really buying unless they're in retirement or extremely wealthy, the 30-year treasury bond yield right now is paying you 2.1%, which is just so tiny. So there's virtually no place you can park your money right now that's going to outpace the 7.5% inflation. So personally, I'm doing the best thing I think I can do in this environment, which is to borrow as much money as I can at the lowest rate possible backed up by hopefully an appreciating asset. So with that said, let me share exactly what I've done step by step. Hi, my name is Andre Jick. Hope you're doing well. Come for the finance and stay for the million dollar strategy. Nancy Pelosi style. So here's what I did. I took out a million dollar loan. It's a secured loan for 2.6% interest, which is how it's so low. And it's for the duration of seven years. Now, the reason I did this is because the more I learn about inflation, the more my mind is blown. Now in economics, there's this concept called the paradox of thrift. And it's the reason why Bitcoin is not a good currency because it's deflationary. Now, the problem with deflation is that if we constantly have a lowering of prices because our economy's booming, we're productive, we're constantly making cheaper and cheaper stuff, then no one would wanna spend their money. 
we wouldn't even have an economy. Because if I know that I could buy this thing today, but if I wait another day, it'll be just a little bit cheaper, then I would just wait and buy it on a discount later. It's why something like 60% of Bitcoin hasn't moved in over a year, because people wanna hold on to the money that preserves its value relative to everything else. But that's a problem, because again, you don't wanna spend it. That's why we need a currency like the dollar, which is a little bit inflationary, which encourages people to actually spend it, but not too inflationary, where it robs from the savers and gives to the borrowers and makes everything unaffordable. And that's what brings me to my strategy. The goal is to borrow money at a cheap rate, to lock it in for as long as possible, and then hope that inflation is at a higher rate than the rate at which I borrowed money. And whatever the difference is between those two will be my profit. Simple, really. No, it's not. So let me explain. Papa Pell and the Federal Reserve have a goal to get inflation down to 2% by the end of the year. That's the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, which is how we measure inflation. But pretty much everyone right now disagrees with that number. Goldman Sachs, for example, is saying that we will have closer to 3.7% inflation if all goes well. I think we'll see a higher inflation number because I don't think all is going well. For example, we have the war in Europe. Russia and Ukraine. War is an inflationary pressure because it increases the federal deficit. In other words, debt. Because we are paying billions of dollars to Ukraine to help them out, which is exactly what we should be doing, but that also increases our debt. And how do we pay for that debt? We issue bonds. We have to create more debt to pay off our debt. It's the craziest thing, but that's how it works. But that also means that we can't increase the interest rate too much too fast because then it makes it harder for ourselves to pay off our national debt. And why would we make it hard for us to borrow money from ourselves? We wouldn't, which means we have to slowly increase the interest rate at a quarter percent increase. Otherwise, we risk tipping to the other side and that's not what we want. But the truth is, increasing the interest rate by a quarter percent is not enough to fight a 7.5% rate of inflation. It's not even close. Also, war makes the supply chain problems potentially worse for a little bit longer. This is because when it comes to semiconductors and microchips and all the stuff that car makers and tech companies need to make stuff with, it's the military that takes priority in times of crisis, which makes sense. But that also means that supply chain problems could be worse for a little bit longer. Also, you remember how we wanna kick Russia out of SWIFT, the global payment system? We wanna choke their financial support, which makes sense why. But it also comes at the cost of a weaker dollar, and here's how. If we force Russia to find an alternative payment system, it also forces its trading partners, countries like China with a huge economy, to also find alternative payment systems, maybe systems like their CIPS, right? But that means there's going to be less global demand for dollars, which means if there's less global demand, there's going to be less absorption when we print more and inflate the supply to pay for our own debt. And that's just a complicated way of saying we need the world to need dollars. Otherwise, we pay the price of inflation sooner. So for all of those reasons, I don't think inflation is transitory. Now let's just take Goldman Sachs' estimate at face value that inflation will be 3.7% at the end of this year. Since I borrowed the money at 2.6%, the difference between those two is 1.1% in my pocket. Plus, because I converted that debt into an asset that will hopefully go up in value, I get to make money that way, and I get to make passive income if I rent it out and I make some cash flow. So I'm protected on all three sides. And because this debt can't be margin called away from me like it could in the stock market, 
I'm protected in that way as well. So with the technical and the number talk out of the way, let me just talk to you like a normal person. I just bought a house, which is crazy because I bought a house in February of last year. I'm living in it, I remodeled it, I love the house, and I'm not buying another one because I feel like I need another one or I want another one. It's because I feel like my hand is forced. I have to leverage the money I have to protect the value I have against inflation. And the safest way I could find to do that is to buy more real estate, which is something I needed more of anyway. This is a crazy world we live in because again, never in a million years that I imagine to be buying another house in basically one year. But I also realized that this strategy is not 100% guaranteed to make me money because people have been saying that real estate is overvalued for a long time now. And especially with the rate increases that are coming, it makes sense that people will be able to afford less house, demand will go down, therefore prices will go down as well. But I also recently learned that's not always the case. Check this out. Economist Robert Schiller posted this super interesting chart which shows that after 1920, home values have still gone up despite the fact that interest rates have also sometimes gone up, which doesn't make any sense. How is it possible that if it's more expensive to buy a house, how are houses becoming more expensive? Are people just made out of money? The reason this can happen is because when you have inflation, it also means a productive economy where people are working, their wages are going up, which means they could be more competitive and offer to pay more for a house. When you combine it with the fact that millennials are coming of age and they need to buy a house to start a family and there's low inventory, and there's a narrative of inflation where both rich people at home and overseas need to park their money into safe assets like real estate and you get the perfect storm where home values could still go up despite the fact that interest rates are also going up. Now, if we go back to the real world where home values go down because of interest rates, then that could still take a very long time. One study, for example, from Bank for International Settlements saw that any time interest rates went down by 1%, home values went up by 5%, but it also took them roughly three years to get to that point. And we kind of saw this play out in 2004 when the Fed stepped in, started to increase the rates, but it also took roughly until 2007 for home values to go down. Maybe that was a different case, but the point is real estate moves really, really slow. And because our Fed wants to increase the rates in only a quarter percent increases, that means that it could take a really long time for home values to go down, if ever at all. Now, maybe I regret my decision to buy a house in a few months or in a few years, I don't know. But here's at least what I've learned from this whole buying process in today's market that I think anyone could use. You're gonna think this story's crazy, but hear me out. I put in an offer on Sniper Wolf's house here in Vegas. Now, she is a content creator and I've always been a huge fan of her house and where it's located and I can't actually pay for her house in cash, but I could afford to get a loan, which is exactly what I did and I got approved for above the asking price. 10 year loan for 2.5% interest and that's an amazing deal. But it's also an adjustable rate mortgage, which means after 10 years, the risk is that I would have to lock in a higher interest rate. I don't think it's a huge risk though because interest rates trend toward zero over a long period of time. So I put in the offer one hour after the house was listed for the full asking price. And as soon as we called the listing agent, she told us that there were already five offers over asking, one of which was cash and they accepted it. I was really bummed because I didn't get the house, but you know, everything happens for a reason and I learned something because there was a plot twist. 
30 days after the house was purchased, we noticed that the buyer got an extension for another 30 days because even though they applied as a cash offer, they had no intention of paying cash. They only bought it to stall for time to get approved on a loan that they didn't have. What I learned is that if you could show the money that you could afford it, that you could apply as a cash offer, even if you have no intention of paying cash. Now this blows my mind. I don't know why this is allowed, but it is. I didn't know this, maybe you did, but either way, once I learned this technique, that's exactly what I did to get my offer accepted on the house I just recently purchased. The second thing I've learned is that the house sold for exactly what I offered and not for over asking like what we were told. The reason I didn't get the house is because the seller's listing agent is what's called a double agent, which means they have less of an incentive to accept my offer. They represent both the buyer and the seller. They get the full commission check. But going with my offer meant splitting it with my real estate agent. I don't know why that's allowed, but that's a conflict of interest in real estate that I hope will change. The takeaway is that if you ever go to sell your house, make sure that the listing agent you're working with is not a double agent because you wanna make sure you are shown the best offer for your house. There were a few other things I learned which I thought was a little sketchy, like the fact that the buyer created an LLC two days before the listing happened and they got approved on a loan for a two day old LLC, which doesn't make sense because they don't have two years of proof of income and banks don't like to lend to LLCs, which raised more questions than it answered. Maybe the listing agent was somehow related to the buyer. I don't know, but what I do know is that the most important thing is this. Make sure you have a steady flow of income and at least six months to one year of an emergency fund to pay off any kinds of expenses or debts that you might have borrowed. That's what I'm doing right now. And I think for real estate, even though there's a risk and it could be inflated, the risk versus reward ratio is worth it because of the high demand, the low supply, because I had access to cheap debt, and during a time of high inflation, I think this is super beneficial. Now, this is definitely risky, but I wanna stay invested in the markets, even when the markets seem a little scary, because scared money doesn't make money, which is the ultimate lesson I've learned so far.